Hi everyone, welcome back. Welcome to Notes to My Legal Self, a place where we explore the lives of in-house lawyers, their views on their practice, career, community, and things they care about. Uh, we know that in-house lawyers are human first and they care about all kinds of things and have all kinds of adventures. So this is a place where I interview them and we can all learn together. If you know of anyone who can contribute to that conversation, definitely let me know. Put your suggestions in, in the comments, tag those people, um, or DM me. I will be happy to get in touch with them myself. Today, I have a very special guest. It's someone that I want to consider my mentor and someone that I've known for a long time. In fact, I've known this person before I become a licensed uh, lawyer in California. I uh, met this person when I was in law school, when I had an, a, an iconic opportunity to help Yahoo uh, integrate Flickr um, when I was in law school. And that was such a learning experience. At the time, he was already a practicing in-house lawyer, and I got a chance to, to see him in action, and he, he very much inspired me. Um, and today, I have an opportunity to interview this person, so I'm really excited. Uh, welcome me and, and, um, and saying hello to Dwayne. Dwayne, please introduce yourself. Oh, thanks, Olga. It's a, it's a pleasure um, to be here. And uh, it's been great uh, knowing you all of this time. I can't believe uh, how long ago that was that we first um, got connected. Um, so I'm Dwayne Valls. I'm currently the general counsel of Incitro, which is a drug discovery company that leverages machine learning to uh, facilitate the process of uh, discovery and treatment of uh, disease. And um, I have been uh, working in the technology industry since the mid 90s when the internet first emerged. And my journey has been mostly as IP counsel but um, in the past, uh, going on to seven years, I've transitioned into being a general counsel and working at the intersection of biotech um, and machine learning. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Yeah, um, you you've had a, a you know you've seen web web one, web two, and uh, in the beginning of web three. So. You, it's the journey of from IP lawyer to general counsel. I know something a little about. I've done that too. Uh, tell us more um, about kind of um, how you got from there to here. Uh, what, what were the stops along the way? Yeah, so I went into law school being very interested in law and technology matters. I was IP focused and I just find that working in the technology field, you are constantly challenged and engaged in what's going out, going on out in the world. And it's been a remarkable um, past 50 years in terms of the strides that have been made in computing and uh, genetics and so many other fields. Um, in the mid 90s, uh, the internet was really blooming. Uh, the World Wide Web was really taking hold when um, I graduated. And so that was just a fascinating way to start my career working uh, in the industry and uh, working around all of the different technologies that uh, eventually became, you know, uh, Web 1.0, Web 2.0, uh, the mobile web and uh, other uh, variants. So 
you know, my training as IP counsel was uh, my inroads to just being in the space and doing what I could to add value and to support some of the great entrepreneurs and engineers and other professionals who have engaged and really created um, the digital world that we experience today. Uh, and I have always had an interest in a broader array of uh, science and technology matters, not just uh, digital communications or the web. And so um, with the sense that we are in the biotech century, um, I decided to um, leave a perfectly good post at, at Google um, <laughs> down fighting the smartphone wars and sort of picked up, uh, you know, with the early um, days of really bringing machine learning to biology to make it more of an engineering discipline. Oh, that's really cool. So you, you, you think the web one, web two, uh, and the intersection of bio and, um, and, and web, uh, very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned now a few terms, so maybe you can help me, you know, sort of define what is sort of, you know, we mentioned web one, web two, you, you mentioned mobile web. What does those terms mean to you? You know, I don't, I'm not looking for a scientific definition by any means. I'm looking sort of loosely speaking, where do you kind of put demarcations of those periods and, and what does that mean? Yeah, so Web 1, I think of as the earliest um, versions of uh, the World Wide Web where we largely use the Netscape browser um, <laughs> to access uh, content. And that was really uh, opened up the world as more um, producers put content on the web. It was accessible, um, you know, through a dial-up modem <laughs> or whatever you might have had in the uh, back in the day. But um, it was a, a one-to sort of site experience. You would go engage with content. Your friend elsewhere might go to the same site. But that was it. You were engaging with increasingly rich and engaging content, but it wasn't quite as dynamic. Web 2.0, um, I think of as a set of technologies coming online, both on you know web pages and in the back end, that enabled multiple users to engage on the same site or the same page simultaneously. That could be just the basics of being able to comment on a page and uh, you know, help publish the content of the page and uh, have uh, create an experience for other users to engage with. Or when we think about social networking sites, the very rich ways that you can engage with content, you know, express your own sentiments and um, be networked to pages representing other users and their interests. So Web2 is this much more interactive um, experience where users are both provided with more dynamic experiences and also enable producers to create more engaging experiences as a result. And when you uh, talk about mobile web, is that Web2 to you or is it a different stage? It is uh, mobile web certainly makes use of uh, web 2.0 and brings it to the computers that we carry in our pockets. But mobility, um, the mobility turn where you really could experience um, the rich content of a web page on your phone 
is involved different technologies and it brought about a, a different experience. Um, it just made the experience of the internet more ubiquitous, more accessible, accessible in different ways. And it opened up business models for content producers and platform operators as a result. So thank you for Dwayne uh, for kind of laying the groundwork uh, uh, for, you know, the periods of times we've had, uh, but it hasn't been all perfect, right? We have seen some challenges uh, in Web2, which is, I think, period we're transitioning out today. Uh, what are the sort of challenges we've seen and uh, what has been sort of our reaction and have we been effective in dealing with them? Yeah, I, I think the, you know, one of the sentiments that we often get from enthusiastic investors and entrepreneurs is that, you know, the internet is going in one direction, just bringing us more towards goodness. And what we've seen with Web2 and um, a lot of what it opens up, especially on large platforms that mm -hmm. aggregate a lot of users and user experiences, is that with the good comes challenges, comes some bad effects. And so when you're able to connect users um, and uh, have them engage with each other, sometimes, you know, badly motivated users can do a lot of damage, whether it's preying on the self-esteem of, you know, their peers in, in middle school or high school or pursuing, you know, darker, more criminal um, activities. You know, that's one uh, danger. We've also seen um, how governments can uh, take advantage of, uh, you know, websites and interactions to track and surveil um, users and in, in, in different countries, dissidents, um, and to use it as a tool uh, for repression. And we also have had incidents where the platform operators themselves, they get a much richer profile of each of their users by understanding the interactions that each user has with other users. And um, between, uh, you know, how you engage on a computer and how you engage on your mobile phone where you have location specific information, there's a rich tapestry of information that's available and increasingly more deeply mined based on uh, the development of machine learning and artificial intelligence to help create insights. And those are often used to improve services and create better experiences for users. But as we know, there can be downsides if this information is, is leaked or inadvertently um, made available uh, to uh, bad players, then there's that much more to exploit. And even things like ad systems that really in allow, uh, you know, players with pecuniary motives or political motives to target users in a deep way, um, you create a whole world where users and their experiences become programmable, not just to the site operators, but to outside interests. And we've seen the impacts of that across elections and um, coups and a lot of social disruptions around the, the world. And we have to take stock of all of these downsides that come with all of the admittedly good things. Yeah, there's um, Web2, you know, probably had many iterations and 
um, a lot of access, yes. And, you know, um, I think you, you made a really good description of, you know, what could possibly go wrong when you, when, when information and insights at scale about people fall into wrong hands. Um, social networking sort of dominated headlines. You know, uh, we had um, Meta, Facebook testifying, Congress. Um, I still remember watching that slow-mo train wreck <laughs> where members of the Congress did not seem to understand, you know, what Facebook does. Um, <laughs> why, why do you think social networking has been such a focal point of our political discourse, for our discussions, for, you know, regulatory actions? You know, why, why are we all focusing on Meta? <laughs> Well, I, I think um, largely because Meta has been successful at not only engaging users um, much more so than other social platforms, but in very effectively expanding its its reach. And so it's a global platform and um, a lot of what uh, Meta and Facebook, particularly the Blue app, has made available to users is increasingly both the envy and the object of exploitation for different players. And, you know, it's become part of the political discourse because, you know, not only because users engage with political content and share it and can, you know, do so in a way that helps influence election outcomes or other political outcomes, but uh, because of the ad systems, and the fact that people are not just selling um, products and services, but ideas and sentiments to influence public opinion, oftentimes with misinformation, um, it's become, you know, quite a flashpoint. Uh, it, you know, in our country, it breaks down along political lines and, you know, what parts of that influence are a good thing or bad thing, but undoubtedly, um, the ability to sway sentiment through social networks is really powerful. And it's not just about generating money. It, it's having a very imbalanced impact on political discourse and political outcomes. Yeah. You know, I find it very interesting that, you know, the WAP2 is very much concentrated in the hands of a few. You know, when you're thinking about iconic Web2 companies, you're talking, you know, yes, we talk about Meta. I don't want to pick on Meta. I, I love Facebook. Um, you know, but there are a few others. We you know, we're talking about Amazon. We're talking about Google. We're talking maybe Netflix. We are talk, talking about Microsoft. Uh, maybe a few others. Um, fo folks collectively call them as, you know, Fanga or whomever, depending who you include. Um, and point to that as a concentration of power uh, that is historically prone to abuse uh, when you have concentration of power. Do you find that that concentration of power and, and uh, is, is problematic? Uh, do you feel that that might have been kind of the root cause um, of, of what could possibly go wrong uh, with in, in Web2? Yeah, I, I'm one of those who, you know, takes a more nuanced view on the size of these companies. I think you know, you always have to be wary um, historically of companies that have a consolidated market position, has, you know, uh, a large market share and uh, therefore isn't um, dependent on competition to keep themselves honest in whatever dimension you may care about. 
But I think some of the problems I was just uh, outlining are not a function of size. You know, with, with respect to, to Facebook or Meta, there's a lot of cries sometimes to break them up um, and a lot of focus on antitrust solutions. But a lot of the issues are really concentrated on the blue app. So I think if you pulled apart Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus, a lot of these issues would remain. Um, you know, breaking them up isn't a um, solution for some of the more, in, you know, acute issues that I, I believe are, you know, the things that we, we need more um, efforts to address. Um, you, you know, in terms of thinking about the scope of the problem, it's not just um, Meta, as you pointed, pointed out. Um, my own former company, I think some of the issues of, you know, ideological rat holes and how people get influenced are presented on YouTube as well, which is its own form of social network. And I just think that part of the issues that I'm describing have to do with um, and why it's not presented in the same way by Amazon is that you're making people's psyches available. Um, and this is what I call, you know, you, you're making your users programmable. If you understand the minutia of what makes people tick um, through their social interactions, their expressions, and the things that they um, make clear that they care about, and you find a way to make that psychometric profile accessible to advertisers, including those who are not just trying to sell products and services, that opens a lot of room for tampering and social manipulation. Um, it makes it possible uh, to spread social diseases, literally, um, through the services that you are providing. I think a lot of, let's say, you know, what Alphabet does, uh, a lot of, they collect a lot of psychometric detail, but providing ads against search results is different than providing ads against those profiles. And, you know, it's a little more purely economic rather than literally selling people based on the contents of their psyches um, to the highest bidder or to those who would pay. That's very interesting. Um, let's, let's actually talk a little bit deeper about it. What is a psychometric profile? Um, you mentioned it a couple of times. I want to make sure people are kind of on the same page there. Then you mentioned the, the term social disease. Um, I, you know, let, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what you, what you mean by that. Yeah, so um, a psychometric profile is one that, you know, and let's make no mistake, all of the big companies um, keep very detailed information about their users, their tendencies, what they like, um, you know, what they're likely to buy, you know, what gets them mad, what gets them happy, um, who they care about, and all of these, you know, details of daily life that we share through the platforms are compiled and analyzed by machine learning algorithms and they create um, an actionable profile of you know subsets of users and literally when you have an ad system that allows you to choose multiple categories multiple dimensions of users you may not say i want to target this ad to user x as an identified person. But if you say, you know, 
I want to target users who um, enjoy, you know, shopping online and who really have, you know, issues with this kind of thing. That kind of thing may not be, you know, directly about buying guns or voting conservative or voting liberal, but it can be analyzed as a proxy issue. And so when you're wanting to target content to users that you know will provoke them and maybe impact their sentiment about a particular political outcome or other outcome, you as a provider creating all of these channels. And literally when I say programming, pro programmable users, I mean it. When you go into a, an ad system to place ads and you get to choose and very in a very fine-tuned detail who you want to target and you have an agenda behind that um it's it's very you know easy you're tapping into the psyches of uh, uh of millions of of users if not hundreds of millions at a, in a given fell swoop and if you are a player who wants to influence sentiment based on disinformation or falsehoods um and you're getting people riled up um such that they can go on murderous rampages against their own fellow citizens. I'll call that a social disease. Um, and, you know, we have all of the other aspects of, you know, certain users feeling really bad about themselves, getting bullied. You know, this plays out in many different realms, not just politically. But if as a result of sharing and as a result of getting content, not just from people you care about, but from people who are throwing sort of advertised ideas um, and sentiments into the mix, um, you become vulnerable to catching social diseases. If how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world, how you feel about, you know, your fellow citizens is unduly influenced by um, the kind of targeting that's happening. Yeah. Interesting. And I think the emphasis here is that, it's not one to one, it's one to many, right? So you can um, identify the profile and, and if, if it falls in the wrong hands, you, you can sort of at scale cause those issues, um, whether they're political or personal or commercial that um, might not have been there and may negatively impact individuals, you know, communities, societies. Um, very interesting. Um, and, it, and, and I guess it, it stems from the fact that, you know, you have sort of such a unique point of, of view into kind of what, as you said, pe makes people take who they are, um, who they are as people um, and where they're vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of discourse around Web3 uh, and how uh, it may address some or many <laughs> Of those issues, there's of course a lot of skepticism too. Maybe you can define Web three. What what is Web three to you? Maybe in comparison with Web two, and then I do want to go into conversation of you know what is the promise of Web three and whether it can actually deliver on addressing the, some of the shortcomings that we talked about in Web two. So Web three is I'd say an emerging concept it, its positioning a cynical view is that it's a conception of the future of the web that would solve a lot of the ills of web 2.0 
Um, but really, the the motive is to you know sell a, a bunch of technologies around and, and services and applications around blockchain. And whether you know that can really address all of these issues uh, remains to be seen. There are you know a lot of well considered folks who consider it a bit of hype. Um, but there are a lot of investors who are lining up behind this concept because they see a lot of promise. And, you know, in its best representation, I think of Web3 as a hopeful direction for recapturing some of the idealism that existed around Web 1.0. And, and so what, are, what is some of that idealism? The idea that anyone could create a web page and share uh, content and connect with a broad community wherever located around the globe was revolutionary at the time. And um, this idea that you don't just have to be a consumer, but you could be a producer. You can create um, a business of your own. Uh, you can be fully expressed, engage with a community beyond the people in your immediate sort of geographically limited us, you know, social circles was, you know, really great. And that is still some of the goodness that we're experiencing today. And, you know, I think in many ways, Web 2.0 has made that even more uh, possible. So this idea that um, if we use uh, blockchain technologies, which is, you know, I'll, I'll give a high level characterization of it, it really, what it does is enables some private ordering of mechanisms that we traditionally allow, you know, relied on bigger public institutions or large private companies to uh, attend to. So what do I mean about by that? The biggest application of blockchain technology is cryptocurrencies. And there's in the back end, this ledger system that keeps track of transactions. Um, in a, you know, a high fidelity way. So it gives you a sense that behind this digital currency, there is some backstop, there is some source of truth. And it's not that the government, which traditionally is the backstop for currencies, has to be involved. There's a private um, ordering of, you know, how these transactions are kept, how these ledgers are kept. And how that supports trust in the system. And so using that foundation, the idea is to say, well, hey, if we can do these kinds of things that traditionally we relied on governments or really large institutions like credit agencies um, to handle, maybe we can build a bunch of services around that and really have users and producers take back um, you know, some of what we see as the the ailments of Web 2.0. So that's the setup. I, I have my own doubts about it. Let's talk about doubts. Um, mm -hmm. I guess what what is uh, where where do your doubts from, um, you know, I uh, stem in this in addressing the, the challenges of Web 2? Yeah, I well, um, there, there are a few. I think there's, um, you know, some of the issues around Web 2.0 has to do with privacy and the bargain that each of us as users makes to give up some of our privacy or a lot of it in order to enjoy the full range of 
you know, the services and experiences that we get from different platforms. And it's not clear to me how Web3 technologies um, will uh, attend to privacy. Um, what, you know, blockchain technologies allows you to do is to ensure security in certain ways um, and to have some sort of auditable transparency behind things that you've done. Um, but whether it can really safeguard privacy interests and whether the economic models built up around different applications can avoid um, some of the targeting that I mentioned and how that can go horribly wrong um, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, blockchain um, applications and kind of platforms, they are not designed to be private. Uh, I, I think you correctly pointed out, they're designed to be secure in the sense of you hiding things in the plain sight. Mm-hmm. You're hiding data in the plain sight. And it's easy to talk about data and it being secure in plain sight unless you realize that, you know, your personal information could be that data. <laughs> and then it becomes uncomfortable, um, you know, because, you know, we may seek transparency, you know, but some things we consider inherently private. Um, and so hiding them in, in public ledger becomes a little bit challenging and problematic. Um, so that, that is one thing that would be interesting to see how privacy issues um, will be addressed. And I, I, I do believe that the blockchain technology is very much coming to the head with, with regulations we have around privacy. Our trends toward privacy um, regulation is more enhanced and the, the, the blockchain trend is sort of in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, almost 180 degrees. So, 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 so it will be interesting to see. Are, are there other challenges that you think? Um, I think privacy is definitely sort of one because it's so going in different directions. But are there other challenges that you think that blockchain technology uh, may not be able to address? Yeah, invariably, um, you know, new technologies that. Uh, challenge established orders um, will be met with some um, consternation. And here I'm thinking about, you know, governments and their relationships to cryptocurrencies, for instance. Um, I think China, for instance, as a country is still very wary of cryptocurrency. Um, Increasingly in the U.S., uh, there seems to be more acceptance, but the SEC is still working through, you know, different ways to uh, regulate um, the use of cryptocurrencies. So, you know, instead of initial public offerings, you have initial coin offerings. And there are all of these exotic sort of instruments <laughs> being created around cryptocurrencies and, you know, very sort of creative business models. But whether they pass muster from a securities law standpoint, um, whether speculation in the value of cryptocurrencies, which, you know, fluctuates quite wildly, um, is permissible or is subject to, um, you know, fraudulent behavior in the way that, you know, before securities were regulated that they were, you know, these are open questions. And so I think 
you know, any, any model that it relies on supplanting a core function that uh, an entity such as a government or established interests such as credit bureaus um, have traditionally, you know, sort of served, then it, it's going to run into some, some headwinds. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Biden executive order. I, I mean, it's it's nice, you know. I've, I've been in blockchain and crypto for a while now. Um, I even had a full time job there a few jobs ago. Um, it's nice that the United States government finally acknowledged that that thing where I had a job was real. Um, <laughs> that it was not just uh, imaginary job. Yeah, uh, but that was nice. But um, I wonder because you know you you know we, we you frame some of the issues in Web two around the sort of collection of data and psychometric profiles and 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 kind of misusing and that data falling into wrong hands and like making people tick um, and we've seen some of that done you know in, in elections and for you know private benefit and you know, political social communal gains um, do you think this is a tool? to kind of deal with those problems? Yeah, it, well, it, it's interesting. And, you know, just thinking about it, um, people will often, can, you know, conflate privacy and security. And in a certain way, they're very much related. Um, if I'm running a, a, you know, a web platform and it's not secure and, attempt, you know, someone with untoward motives can break in and, get my user data, then I'm compromising their, their privacy vis-a-vis uh, -vis that third party. Um, and, you know, in those two things, if I ensure better security, I ensure user privacy with respect to third parties. Um, the, they're very much related. But the kind of security that blockchain technologies offer is authentication security that I can trust that this transaction is valid, that the um, thing that I'm receiving for money or some other form of value, this coin, you know, there's some backing to it, that it's a real entity. And authentication security is important, but it's a very different kind of security than the ones we think about related to ensuring privacy interests. And in fact, authentication security requires transparency and auditability um, and, you know, reliability. And ultimately, if as a, you know, a provider, you can't, um, you know, ultimately protect your authentications of a particular set of users from, you know, sort of government inquiries or if as a function of your business model, that transparency has to be universal among your users, then you really have to think about what personal information that may be bound up in a particular transaction um, or interaction that you're authenticating, you know, you need to safeguard, you know, and, and how else do you get that done? So just understanding the mechanisms of blockchain, I think on its own, um, it won't be sufficient. And if the premise of Web3 is that you build it entirely from that foundation, I think it'll address some, you know, some critical issues and it might enable an amazing new set of services. But I just don't think of it as a cure 
for some of the issues that we've talked about with Web 2.0. This has been such a great conversation and I, I, I'm clearly uh, a fan of technology and this technology and prior technology. Just love mm-hmm. technology, I guess. Um, I um, the, the time flew by and, uh, and, and very interesting conversation. I guess I'll ask you um, for, a, you know, um, as a goodbye because I, I very much enjoy this conversation and, and I think it's very thought-provoking and all of us who unavoidably will be going forward and um, thinking how this technology fits with the old, whether we run on a parallel path where it, some of it is replaced. Um, what is the one thing you want folks to take away from this conversation as they, you know, we are all at some point will be actively building the future. Uh, those of us who show up to work every day and thinking uh, how uh, our products and services evolve and how we contribute to society and what kind of legacy we'll leave. Um, what is the one message you want folks to consider as they as they go through that? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to encourage folks to be very active, you know, not necessarily as activists, but just to, to be very engaged in these issues. You know, throughout our discussion, we've discussed the, the roles that governments can play both as bad actors as well as, you know, um, good actors in, in trying to grapple with not only the new technologies, but the social dynamics that they're influencing and coming up with tailored regulation that might help address it. And, you know, having worked at Yahoo, at Google, and understanding how a lot of the companies operate, I genuinely believe that they want to do good and bring good to the world, um, but they don't necessarily have all the guidance that they need, the guardrails and rules of engagement from uh, the public sector that they need. And ultimately, their profit interests and their business growth interests may have them take certain liberties that aren't in the best interest of users. So we can't just rely on public interest organizations to advocate on behalf of we the people as citizens and consumers and we need to be actively engaged in helping to formulate um, some of what should come next, how to keep the good while safeguarding against the bad. And it requires folks at different levels who just have a, a very plain everyday understanding of what they experience uh, through the internet, as well as lawyers and engineers who um, might have another level of depth of understanding who can help, um, you know, sort of get thoughts and perspectives out there. So I, I think it just requires that we be fully engaged in this. Yeah, I, I love, thank you, Dwayne, for that. Thank you for finding the time to talk to me. I, I Every time I talk to you, I um, you, you reframe issues for me. I You've been doing this now for almost 20 years. So thank you for that. Um, I really appreciate it. I love your experiences in Web 1, Web 2, now going to Web 3 and with all kinds of technologies from SaaS to, to AI and intersection of bio or not. Um, so clearly, uh, you're a man who have seen quite a few things. I, you know, I, the concept that I, I like is that, you know, being active with, you know, you don't have to be an activist to be active. Right, being engaged, being intentional, thinking about implications of what you're creating, of your products and services. I think that's a very, very powerful idea. Um, we as, as citizens, we as lawyers who help companies to really uh, make good decisions, I uh, can guide them on. So thank you for that conversation. I, I very much appreciate it.
Oh yeah. Well, well again, thank you for having me. I appreciate seeing how, you know, you've developed, you have a very 360 perspective on, on the technology uh, industry and how you like to engage with it and engage people who are active in it. And it's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in. I, I want you to start thinking what it means to be active and, you know, not necessarily being an activist. If that's your, your jam, go for it. But being active and being intentional and being uh, professional and being kind of part of a building community, which all of us are sooner or later, one way or another, and what it means to provide legal advice in, in that context and how to do this responsibly and how to do it well so that we sort of live the world um, in a better place than we found. Um, technology is definitely what I call is a sharp knife and you can use it to, to cure and you can use it to kill. So let's make sure that we create, you know, an amazing tool that, that really um, lives sort of the world in a better place and, 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 and shape than we found it. If you have any recommendations of who else can enrich uh, in-house uh, practice, whether it's personal, professional, community, or sort of future-looking, uh, definitely let me know. Uh, I find that there's a lot of thought leaders in-house, and they have many views and tools and uh, know-how that should be shared, should be shared widely so we can all learn from. So definitely let me know who those folks are, and I will be sure to invite them to have this conversation. And with that in mind, Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye, everyone.